Welcome to Peer Spectrum, the show where we uncover the creative solutions, innovative tools, and advanced practices of our peers, both inside and outside of medicine. Recharge and refocus with incredible stories, unique perspectives, and unforgettable conversations. Get ready to see what's working. Get ready to see what's ahead. Get ready to see things differently. Get ready for Peer Spectrum. Now your hosts, Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Colin Miller here with Keith Mankin. Today, we're happy to welcome Mara Howard-Williams to the show. Mara has traveled extensively throughout the U.S. and around the world supporting critical medical mission work. She currently works as a graduate research assistant at America's Health Rankings, while also pursuing her master's in the School of Global Public Health at UNC Chapel Hill. Mara is also a special guest for us because she's also one of Keith's former patients. Diagnosed in her early teens with advanced scoliosis, Mara underwent corrective deformity surgery by Keith two years later. Following her recovery, Mara was asked to offer advice and help to several other young patients facing similar paths. Mara was happy to help, wishing that she had had someone her age to talk with before her surgery. It didn't take long for Mara to recognize that more than just a few kids needed her help. So Mara took the initiative and created an incredibly successful support network called Backtalk. This is a place where kids could come, talk with, and ask questions of peers just like themselves. We're going to learn more about Mara's efforts and what it was like to be a young patient facing major surgery. We'll also explore Mara's medical mission work abroad. We covered the cultural dynamics of patient care, what NGOs do well and what they do not, how you can get involved, and the mistakes and legal oversights many physicians make when going on medical missions abroad. This was a fascinating episode, and we hope you enjoy listening to Mara just as much as we did. Just a quick side note. We did have a few technical issues with this episode, and unfortunately, we did lose a short segment. You'll notice this about midway through with a beeping sound. We cleaned up everything as best we could in post-production, so hopefully you'll hardly notice. With that said, let's get started. Mara, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. Very glad to be here. So Mara, we're just going to start out. Take us on the beginning of the path. You were once one of Keith's patients, and tell us about that, but also about your viewpoint from being a patient and why you started getting into some of the things that you got into, especially with Backtalk. Sure. Um, Well, when I was uh, 13, I was diagnosed with severe scoliosis, came as a complete and total shock to my family. We had no clue. I didn't have any symptoms, um, no physical pain or anything. And um, so being a 13-year-old kid walking into a doctor's appointment and being told, Great. Here's your x-ray. By the way, you need major surgery. Um, I'm going to give you a minute to think on that. <laughs> and I'll come back in a little bit. You know, it's it's just really overwhelming. <laughs> you know, so it's just me and my mom in a room. And I remember all I was thinking and, and sorry, Keith, for this, but um, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He has to be wrong. <laughs> um <laughs> And so, you know, as time went on, we got second opinions. Reality started to hit that this this really was going to happen. I had um, almost a 50-degree curve. It, it clearly needed to be corrected. Um, so after the surgery and everything, I started looking back and thinking, I wish there were people I could have talked to. I wish that there were people my age I could have talked to, some sort of mechanism for me to be able to connect with others who really understood what I was going through because I... I'm not sure how familiar you are with 13-year-old girls, but they don't tend to reach out too much to parents and uh, to <laughs> to peers that don't understand what's going on. Um, and so I really felt like there was a lack in that aspect of the healthcare, that more human side where your doctors don't understand what your priorities are, your parents are telling you you have to do this, and you're kind of rebelling. Um, 
So with that, I approached Dr. Mankin, and we together were able to start a support group for kids with scoliosis that um, was active for about eight years. And the primary goal was to provide kids a place to express their concerns, to be able to just be mad if you wanted to be mad, to be able to be creative and express that however you wanted without judgment. Um, what came as a secondary aspect of that was the parents started gathering at the same time and were able to talk to each other, talk about their fears, things they didn't even know to ask a doctor about or, or um, kind of get more of that 360 look at treating scoliosis. And, and so that's kind of how I started off being interested in the side of healthcare. When you were 13 years old, I mean, you have a 50 degree curve. Obviously, that's something that that has to be addressed. Yes. Uh, what was your biggest fear at that point? And what, from your vantage point, would have helped you besides just talking to other kids, maybe just your interactions with Keith, Dr. Mangan, his staff? What were your observations that you can remember right now? Sure. I, I know for me, the biggest thing, I was an avid dancer and singer, and I was so concerned that my career path as a Broadway star was over. <laughs> you know? um, and so that was really the, my, the weight of my concerns was, am I going to be able to dance again? Um, you know, I knew I wasn't going to be able to bend my spine, but what was my life going to look like? Um, and it's, you know, you have your entire future ahead of you. You're in middle school. There's a whole lot of things that come after middle school. Um, and so trying to find a physician that really appreciated that um, was important to me, um, which actually is the reason that we ended up um, continuing with Dr. Mankin over the other surgeons that we had visited because um, he actually talked to me as the patient, not just to my parents, not just to um, you know the medical circumstances, but he said, you know, well, you tell me what's important to you. What do you like to do? And that was a big deal for me as a 13-year-old girl, for somebody to take into account, I'm not just the body that's going to be on the table, but I'm a whole person. <laughs> uh, that went a really long way for me. That's interesting because I think for other physicians listening right now, especially those in pediatrics or dealing with younger patients, you do have to deal with the parents. I mean, they, they, you're not a, of legal age yet to make your own decisions, but you still are. This is, affects you more than anybody. So really giving you the power to make your own decision and making sure that you felt that that was that you were being listened to, that, that seems to me probably one of the most important things you got out of those initial visits, right? Absolutely. Uh, I know we went to some physicians who, um, and you know, these were secondary visits; these were second opinions. And um, they would walk into the room, and they wouldn't even acknowledge me being in the room. <laughs> you know, they would yeah. go straight to my parents, which, of course, you have to talk to the parents. They're the ones who are the decision makers. They're the ones that have the adult body of knowledge to work from. Um, but to just feel like you were somebody's, um, implement or somebody's, um, just kind of not test dummy, but to feel like you were, <laughs> you know, uh, you're my project and, but you don't really have a say in what happens. Even though I was 13 years old, I knew it wasn't going to be my decision. It wasn't going to be up to me feeling like somebody was taking me into account as a whole person went so far for me. Wow. So, so Mara, this is something I've sort of took for granted because, um, you know, obviously I got to know you really well during the surgical process and the recovery process, but how did you make the leap from internalizing this, from, from knowing that you wanted to empower yourself, uh, as a patient to saying, I'm going to take this out and I'm going to try to empower other patients. I'm going to try to make sure that other patients uh, and other, um, kids have the ability to understand things. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, it took a couple of years after I had surgery, I think, for me to really process it myself and to understand, um, okay, here is what my life is like. And, and I think that distance of becoming acclimated to life post-surgery um, really provided me clarity on why I was upset in the first place, why this was so challenging, because on a day-to-day basis at this point, I don't really notice it that much. Um, but it was a traumatic process. And so taking that time to be able to look back and think on what was it that really bothered me? Of course, it's painful. Of course, it's surgery. There's, you have that with every surgery. Um, but in those couple of years, I was able to really say, you know, I felt so alone. I felt like there weren't other people that really understood what I was going through. There were people that had had surgeries. There were people my age. But there was very little overlap between those two groups, and especially with a major surgery. So taking that time to look back and over the course of those couple of years, every now and then another patient would contact me and say, hey, you know, you, we were given your name as somebody who might be willing to talk to us. It, it kind of flipped my thinking. Well, why should there just be a small group of people that are willing to talk to you? Shouldn't we just have some sort of mechanism that you can go to? You don't have to pick up the phone and call someone you've never met before and say, hey, what are the odds that you'll talk to me today? You know, there should be more resources in place for that. There should be more assistance for people to be able to get that kind of support and answer those softer questions that, frankly, most of the time doctors don't have time to sit down with you for hours on end and answer every last question. <laughs> some of the early questions that you got when um, some of these patients were reaching out to you. Um, a lot of times it was, um, how is your life different now? since it had been a couple of years, how was your life different now? The obvious question is, does it hurt? Uh, sure. <laughs> which was never a fun one to answer because you don't want people to be terrified, but at the same time, you can't lie. <laughs> um, what are the biggest changes that you've seen in your life? Um, and probably the biggest one overall, what are the things that you can't do? Right. And there's very few of those but it's hard to understand that when you're 13 and you're seeing, okay, the next six months here, are the things I can't do that after six months, after a year, after five years, you can do all those things again. Um, the scale of time is very different when you're 13. <laughs> right. Sure. Yeah. And a, a total disclaimer, I was not involved with um, the meetings of this. I was an advisor um, and helped with some of the medical questions. Uh, and I participated in some of your activities, but I wasn't there for, for uh, the real discussion groups. So this is uh, actually all new to me. Um, <laughs> was there, were there people who expressed frustration, not with me, but with the situation, uh, anger at the situation, um, sadness, sorrow? Was this something that, that you actually had to deal with? Oh, absolutely. And we had a... Um a child life specialist who was just a magnificent woman who was with us during these meetings to help us navigate those emotions, especially since we were dealing with minors. We want to make sure that there is a responsible adult capable of addressing these sensitive issues with us at all times. Um, and so she was very instrumental um, in helping navigate those emotions and helping identify them. Um, a lot of times I would find that a lot of the kids in the group were upset but couldn't be more specific than that. Had a hard time understanding why they were upset. What is it I'm upset about? Is it anger? Is it sadness? Is it fear? You know, all those kind of get lumped into upset. Um, so helping everybody kind of think through 
Why do I feel this way? What is it I'm afraid of? And really just kind of demystifying the process, helping them understand what was going to happen next if they wanted to. Of course, we had some kids that said, I don't want to know. <laughs> you know, I'm going to walk out of the room while you tell me what's going to happen next. And for them, that was liberating, too. You can't just walk out of the doctor's office in the middle of your appointment. <laughs> um, I've, you know, I've, had it, I've had it happen, <laughs> just so you know. But <laughs> Sure. <laughs> yeah, but um, helping them really understand how these things are happening and to give them a little bit of control in the situation as well. Right. So I would imagine, you know, I mean, give us some structure to this. How many meetings, was it a monthly meeting? Was it quarterly every week? Yes. I mean, how long did it take the kids to probably feel comfortable maybe sharing some of the things that were, were troubling them? We started out um, with meetings once a month. Um, and we kept that up for about six, six or seven years. Um, and, it would take kids varying degrees of time to open up. It really depended person to person. Um, we would have some kids come in that were just so excited for a place that they could feel connected to other people that they felt understood. They would just open up immediately. We had other kids that would come uh, because their parents made them and <laughs> they were not happy to be there and they were very angry that their parents made them come. <laughs> and, um, but they kept coming back and they would come back month after month. And after a couple months, they would start talking and um, we would hear from their parents that even though, you know, they would sit in the corner and be very grumpy, they were really getting a lot out of it and they could tell. Um, uh, and I don't think we ever had anybody really hold out on us permanently. Uh, <laughs> I think probably after two or three months, everybody really started getting involved. But, you know, when we say support group, we tend to think of this, everybody sits in the circle and says, hi, my name is, and that, that's not what this was at all. Um, right. this was designed to be fun and engaging and for kids. We would do art projects. We would go hiking. We would bake cookies. We would, um, do, you know, more physical activity type things. This was designed to be something people wanted to come to, not just to sit and talk about your feelings all the time kind of deal. Right. So and the, the parents weren't involved with this. It was just the child life specialist, right? That was the only adult in there. Right. We specifically had a policy and everybody you know, knew coming in, this was the way it worked. This was for the kids only. This was their time to ask questions. Maybe they didn't want to ask in front of their parents. Of course, you know, with that, you have um, your liability waivers and, you know, certain things will be disclosed to your parents if you tell us. <laughs> sure, sure. But, <laughs> but on the whole, it was really just the uh, the kids. Yeah, and for some of our viewers out right now thinking, I would like to, to somehow s either create something like this or at least support this in my community and for my patients. Um, it. I'm imagining, Mara, it's probably better that it started with you rather than Keith starting it. But maybe someone has to has to get, get it going. What would be the first steps if a physician, a pediatrician, mm -hmm. pediatric orthopedist, whomever, wanted to get this going in their community, wanted to get this going for their practice? I think finding a community member um, is really beneficial. I've I'm a huge advocate of working with the community that you're in. Um, so if you have a patient that you think might be open to this, if you have uh, just somebody who's not your patient in the community that you think might be open to this, developing a partnership um, with someone who represents that area you're hoping to help is the first step. Um, you each see different sides and you have different um, perspectives that together are much more powerful than either alone. And frankly, you have the backing and the structural support more that way. Um, you know, if you have a practice, you might have an office space you can offer for a program like this. Um, me as a 13 year old, I had no office space. <laughs> you know, uh, the logistics of it um, were 
difficult to navigate at times. So finding that partnership, that community member, or even a partner organization um, altogether can be really helpful. So at 13 years old here, you you were the one organizing the meetings, right? Finding space. I mean, most of that was on your shoulders or did you have uh, any help? Yeah. So I, when I was 15 is when I started it. I'm so I sorry. Um, but um, I had huge help from my parents primarily. They were big supporters of the program, very engaged and involved with it. Um, additionally, we had the support of Dr. Mencken and we also had the support of Wake Med Hospital. So Wake Med was able to provide us um, a place to meet. They, for a while, were providing us with some staff to assist on a volunteer basis. Uh, we're talking about an hour and a half once a month. So not a huge monetary commitment on their part, but still something that we were very appreciative of. Um, their facility that we had enabled us to have a variety of different types of events. So they had a kitchen facility. We could have food. They had um, more of a classroom type facility if we wanted to have guest speakers. So it, it provided us with some flexibility. So it was um, important that you had at least institutional endorsement, even if not institutional support then. Absolutely. And especially, I think, if you're if you're trying to develop something that goes beyond a single practice, if this is more of a community effort than a practice effort, having a third party endorsement is very powerful. Um, we had patients from um, all around the area from five or six different physicians in our group. We were not a physician specific group. And having that endorsement of the hospital rather than the physician practice went a long way in making sure people felt comfortable coming to that. That's great. And are you still in touch with backtalkers? I am from time to time. Yeah. I actually quite frequently will get questions now that a lot of them are starting college. Um, in particular, how, how do you study? You can't sit for that long. <laughs> how, how on earth did you study and make it through college? <laughs> you know? So it's, um, it's helpful to let them know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and being creative and studying habits is absolutely okay. <laughs> That's great. So when this started, um, I'm guessing here, correct me if I'm wrong, Facebook and social media wasn't quite where it is today, right? Correct. So you probably had a basic website, but that was mm -hmm. probably your only online presence. Yes. Um, as far as you know right now, are there Facebook groups or I don't even know what other names to use, Snapchat or whatever is used now, <laughs> but yeah, you know, basically groups like this, but they have more of an online presence now. Is there anything like that you're aware of? Yeah, there are a couple out there. Um, they each kind of focus on different aspects. Um, for me personally, I was always a little wary of the online space just with liability and minors and making sure you can protect their confidentiality, but making sure they're also protected. Um, so that is one of the hangups that you have with the online space. But there are a lot of forums out there that people can go to for advice. Um, I've seen a lot lately with um, bracing and fashion which has been really helpful for a lot of teens understanding how to dress around a cumbersome brace that you wear all day. Um, so there are definitely resources out there, but I haven't seen anything that's um, really focuses on developing a closer group of people that kind of stay in touch. And it's kind of your core trusted group. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm thinking, you know, the, the triangle area, you've got two major medical universities here, Duke and UNC. You also have major medical institutions, but Obviously, some of these kids coming in for treatment are coming from surrounding areas in North Carolina or Virginia or maybe even farther away. Um, for those kids, uh, were you getting much of a draw from the surrounding areas outside of the triangle? Was the, were there people traveling to come to these meetings, anything like that? We had people travel probably up, up to an hour to come. 
okay. to the meetings. Um, beyond that, we considered them more of our virtual members, and we would send out, you know, our monthly updates. We would develop materials for support um, and that we would make sure could always get to them if they were coming from farther away. Um, we would always give out phone numbers if anybody wanted to talk. Um, another big function that our group did was hospital visits. Um, so we would visit, visit patients in the hospital, bring them a body pillow, bring them some comforting things to do. Uh, it's very boring being in the hospital for four days and feeling like you can't move. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just trying to support that whole person again, um, which when people would travel was especially welcome since their family wasn't able necessarily to just pop over to the hospital. It's nice to see some comforting faces and especially if it's somebody who can kind of, who, who knows exactly where you've been, who's been there themselves. <laughs> Let's talk about one more thing, and then we're going to move on here. But the one thing that I was involved in was the um, spine camp that happened once a year. And I, yeah. I don't believe that was directly connected with Backtalk, but certainly they were at least indirectly linked. And from my standpoint, as an industry representative, we would help sponsor this. It was an educational opportunity for, for patients and their families. And we'd bring in some of our equipment that Keith used during the surgeries and let uh, the kids get their hands on it kind of take some of the the mystery out of what was going to happen and at least meet the people who are on their surgical team. Talk a little bit about that more. I don't know how much involvement you had, but um, the idea of, of what the questions were in your mind. I mean, you'd never been in an operating room before. You didn't know what a CRNA is who does anesthesia. You didn't right. know what a circulating nurse is. What were some of the big questions in your mind? And then how did some of that help these kids at least see the faces who are going to be, be treating them? Absolutely. Um, I, there was not a spine camp before I had surgery. I wish there was, I would have loved to have had a spine camp. Um, but one of the big things is it put a fun twist on what was happening. Spine camp was intended to be upbeat, intended to be educational, but also interesting. Um, and with that, you had better engagement that it, it took away some of the scary aspects. It said, you know, okay, here's, here's what's going in your back. Do you want to try it yourself? You can you can touch it. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, okay. uh, And I think it's really empowering for a lot of the kids to know what's going to happen to say, OK, well, when I see 15 people all wearing masks and I only see their eyes, <laughs> you know, this might be what they're doing. <laughs> you know? Sure. Just to have an idea of what's happening. Of course, you don't understand the whole process start to finish, but you get that idea of, OK, these are all people who are here to take care of me. Everybody's on my side here. And you start to really internalize that, that these are people who are going to be helping you, not just people that are there. Okay. So Mara, let's, uh, let's uh, fast forward a little bit. Okay. So um, you've, uh, you've done the surgery, you've done back talk, you've graduated high school, you've gone to college. How did the back talk experience uh, shape what you wanted to do in college and what your ambitions were for uh, after you were in college? Sure. I started off being wholeheartedly certain that I wanted to become a doctor. I wanted to become an orthopedic surgeon. I was going to change the way that orthopedics operated. Um, that was my life's calling. Um, <laughs> got to college, quickly realized I'm actually not that interested in chemistry and biology. And the idea of helping people one patient at a time was very frustrating for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I found I was much more comfortable and confident helping people in groups, helping a group of kids with scoliosis. I didn't feel like I needed to be the person that fixed their scoliosis, but I did find much more satisfaction being the person that could help them with the whole process. Um, so I had lots of wonderful conversations with mentors and 
ultimately concluded that public health was really where I was interested in being, particularly with an international focus, um, trying to help people at more of the population level, helping them in larger groups rather than treating the same person for the same illness day after day. Okay. So did you find some of the tools that you developed with Backtalk were helpful as you were studying in, in um, the public health school? Absolutely. Having an understanding of a relatively specialized group of individuals went a long way in helping me understand how many types of people there are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, the girls that I worked with, Backtalk was primarily girls, um, but the girls that I was working with really represented a subset of a population. And as I would go through the literature and go through the different program models and learn about program structure, I started to realize that a lot of this is geared towards assuming everybody's the same, Hmm. assuming people think very similarly, assuming that um, if you have a group of people with diabetes, that they're all going to have the same priority. And my experience um, with girls had shown me that you really don't know what somebody's priority is going to be. Everybody might have a different one, or they might all have the same one, but you don't inherently know that. Yeah, I think one of the problems with medicine is we tend to focus, uh, certainly the providers tend to focus on the pathology, and we tend to homogenize patients. Um, But that's really not true at all. I mean, not only from an individual standpoint, but even from uh, groups within a community, they're going to be much different as how they'll, they'll respond to uh, to the healthcare system. Isn't that true? Absolutely. Um, one of my big uh, research areas and points of focus is on cultural competency, but comparing that to a different idea of cultural humility. Um, so when you think about cultural competency, I know a lot of people think about, okay, I took a training course about, you know, here's the demographic breakdown of my practice and here's, you know, the populations we need to learn about more great. You know, I checked some boxes, did my hours and I learned some about this population. Um, but the approach that I think is really beneficial to take is that of cultural humility. So of course you want to know some basic principles about the population you're helping. You want that information. It's, it's, wonderful information. But then to sit back and say, all right, this one class did not teach me everything I need to know. To -hmm. be able to step back and say, all right, this tells me something general about a culture, but this is a generalization. Now, when my patient walks in, they may or may not fit all of these different ideas. They might fit some and not others. And I need to be aware of that as I talk to them and as I progress in my relationship with them, understanding that just because the Hispanic culture typically acts this way does not mean that your Hispanic patient will be acting that same way. Okay. Um, but I, I think that uh, in medicine, we don't necessarily learn that there are even cultural differences of cultural approach, or I should say cultural differences to approach. Um, so this actually may come as some news or, or an eye-opener to some of our listeners, the fact that uh, there is even a concept of uh, uh, cultural changes uh, within a patient population. What kinds of things have you seen? How does that play into a practical standpoint? shamans in the culture together so that they would kind of treat the patients together 
and they were able to get much higher compliance with medical orders, much higher compliance with taking medications, more buy-in for needed surgeries um, with the culture because they were working with a respected community leader. Um, and I, so I know that there are models out there that are doing similar things for different cultures and that that has been very successful, building that community partnership, especially with some did in that area, um, to ensure that your patients feel comfortable, that they really trust and believe in what you're saying. That's interesting because, yeah, if you have a population like that where they're concentrated enough to have a structure to their community and leadership, um, that's something you could do. Uh, My understanding of that group, a lot of them came in after Vietnam or during Vietnam, right? Uh, I mean, a lot of them were trying to escape certain areas of Southeast Asia. So we do have a, a fair number living here in the United States. What Obviously, there's there's going to be non-traditional medical advice coming from some of these religious leaders. How do they navigate that when, you know, we we, dig, we deal with a lot of problems today, like people not you know having their children vaccinated, and generally in agreement those those at least in our program that um, children should be vaccinated. But sometimes you're fighting against not only bad scientific information or lack of scientific information, but also cultural differences. How do you navigate those? Or how, how have you seen in that example you just brought up? Sure. I think the, the biggest challenge is getting the community leader, now whether that's a shaman or formal religious leader, or in the case of vaccines, it could be celebrities. <laughs> sure. You know, getting that leader to see it your way, to see, to understand the importance and helping that pin, that point person really understand why this is important and helping them understand the impact of what happens when they say, well, I don't believe in vaccines. Helping them see the widespread outcome, helping them understand the trickle-down effect there, right? Okay, so maybe you didn't vaccinate your kids, but let's say this takes a much larger scale. Here are the diseases that are going to come back. Here's how many people are going to be affected, helping them really understand we can work together (laughs) and um, we can kind of meet in the middle on this and be much more effective than if we each just say, well, I don't like your idea. You don't like my idea. We're just going to separate and you can do whatever you want. I'm going to do whatever I want. Yeah, that's interesting. So you said, you know, compliance with medical orders. So if they're supposed to be, you know, taking statins for cholesterol, for example, um, and again, we're talking about adults here, but we could go back to children. Sure. Um, when you go to the shaman, you're 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 almost getting a validation for the orders, and then you see a higher compliance. So right. maybe you don't necessarily have to explain everything to the patient. Maybe it's almost more right. important to find the influencer in that community yeah. and and work through them. That's that's a very interesting path. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of times we tend to think very black and white about our um, medical diagnoses and our options. We tend to think, okay, well, you can take the traditional route or you can take the medical route. There's nothing There's nothing in a doctor's order that says you can't also go visit your shaman. <laughs> sure. You know, so being accepting of that on the physician side, saying, you know, we absolutely encourage you to um, continue your prayer practices or, or whatever that particular population might hold true, as long as it's not directly harming the treatment, you know, encourage that and don't, um, don't laugh it off or, you know, belittle it in any way. Make sure that you're very sensitive to that it is that could be very vitally important to a patient. Um, if they believe that they're going to get better, I think they're much more likely to get better. Uh, what kind of strategies do you have to get the shaman to accept you. I mean, part of it is the, is the give and take. 
Um, it may be black and white from their standpoint. No medicine. I don't even want you to go to this this Western doctor or or however you want to to phrase it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's the initial impressions are very powerful. You don't know what pri- prior contact that person may have had um, with a Western doctor if they the last encounter they had with them was one who really said, "Well, you know, your form of medicine doesn't work. You're going to have a." lot of obstacles to overcome and gaining that trust. Right. Uh, so I think it's important to approach it ver- from a very accepting, open-minded standpoint. Now, that doesn't mean you have to agree. Right? That doesn't mean compromise your beliefs, but it does mean approach it with an open mind and approach it from the point of view of we are going to work together, not I'm going to convince you of my ideas. So is that the uh, the cultural humility concept that you were talking about? It absolutely ties in. Um, it's, you know, not assuming that that person knows what you know or believes what you believe. And more importantly, not assuming that you know what that person believes. Um, but this give and take, it's a conversation. It's um, taking the time to say, I'm not familiar with this part of your culture. Could you tell me about it? I'm mm-hmm. interested to know. Um, taking your assumptions into a conversation like that is probably going to halt that conversation. Uh, or at least not give you the information that you really want to know, because the point of a conversation like that is to understand some of that nuance, is to understand why do people believe in this? What is it that makes people really drawn to this? Um, And what can I do to make people feel more comfortable? It's taking the time to say, I know I'm not the expert here, (laughs) and I need your help to best reach my patients. Right. What are... uh good questions because you've had experience now in a, a number of settings where you um, elicit people's ideas, elicit people's uh, beliefs, um, their understanding of things. What are good questions that providers can ask that will give them a sense of where a person stands in terms of the their cultural acceptance or in terms of their cultural um, uh, approach to medical care? Sure. I think one of the biggest Um, questions that can be asked is once you've gone through a diagnosis, once you've explained it, um, to say, okay, do you have any questions about this diagnosis? Which, of course, you already asked. But to really say, you know, no, it's okay if you have questions. I'm here to answer them for you. Not just the, do you have questions? Because I'm about to go to the next patient. (laughs) (laughs) To To take that time to say, if you have questions, you can ask me now. If you think of questions... Here's how you can reach me or, you know, my my nurse or somebody that they have somewhat of a rapport with. And then beyond that, once you give a treatment regimen to say, does this seem like it's going to work for you? Does this seem like something that you can do uh, either daily or incorporate into your lifestyle? And to really be attentive to how somebody responds to that question. Um, If there's hesitancy you know, compliance is a really big issue. If there's hesitancy before they even get out of the door, you probably aren't going to have good results once they get home. Mm -hmm. Um, So saying, okay, well, what is it that concerns you then? You know, if this doesn't seem like it's going to work for you, what is it that concerns you? And of course, you're you're not going to be able to win every time. Some things will be out of your control. Sometimes people just won't do it and there's not a good reason for it. But that's your window of opportunity to say, you know, okay, well, let's, let's see if we can work on that then. Let's see if we can figure out another alternative for you. Right. So Mara, I'm wondering, actually thinking about one of our recent episodes, we talked about something called direct patient care, and this is a relatively newer model in family medicine 
of paying a membership fee and getting more access and time with the position and the practice. And we could go a little too far off track talking about that. Just uh, ask our viewers to check that recent episode out if they want to learn more. But time definitely is a restriction here. Absolutely. And um, according to Dr. Benson, when she came on, the average family doctor has somewhere around seven to eight minutes on average with, with each patient. That's right. especially in a busy practice where you may have 3,000 patients in that practice, um, upwards of, of that or more. Um, time definitely is a constraint here. And I know a lot of uh, our viewers are listening right now and saying that I'm interested in these techniques and I would like to ask more questions and get to know the patients. I just don't have the time. Yeah. What are your thoughts about that? And assuming that is your restriction and we can't go change the whole practice around, how do you deal with that time constraint? I think, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword there because you can't just say we're going to uproot how our practice operates and give everybody more time. That's not realistic. But at the same time, if taking just seven or eight minutes is leading to low compliance, if you're not reaching your patients, if your patients don't trust you as a result, then you've wasted seven to eight minutes instead of really used it. Uh, so I think there has to be a bit of a give and take there. And these suggestions are not something that's going to take you another 45 minutes, right? This is, can take it just an extra two to three minutes. Most of the time, these questions are things that can be pretty simply resolved. And especially after an initial uh, appointment, you know, once you start to know this person, once you start to know what's important to them, their priorities, why the solutions you've posed in the past do and don't work, that's not a conversation you necessarily have to have on each subsequent appointment. This conversation gets shorter over time. And of course, we all know things change in people's lives. You will have to revisit this occasionally. But this is not a suggestion to say spend 30 to 45 minutes with every patient. This is to say really make sure that what you've asked your patient to do is something they seem confident and capable of actually implementing before they leave the room. So it's not about the time. It's just about really the quality of the questions. Right. And then keeping up with what you learned from the previous visit, uh, I'm assuming taking more notes about that person and about the, their background and who the influencers are over that patient it could be the shaman. It could be their parents, whomever Sure, a that could save a lot of time. Parents, you know, whoever in the household is making the calls. You know? Right. Yeah. How about you know, using other staff members in the, for this nurses, uh, PAs to also give you a little bit more time? Um, do you find sometimes these patients, build up a trust in the physician and it takes more time to build up trust with other staff members? Is it easy to kind of seamlessly flow where you leave the room and the nurse comes in but continues the conversation? What are your I thoughts think, there? I think that um, if done well, that could be a very effective approach where the physician doesn't necessarily need to be the person asking these questions. Um, now, I will say in some cultures, I'm not sure that would work because uh, especially ones that are more authoritative, um, that really do look at hierarchies as being a primary um, primary point of legitimacy. I'm not sure that this would that idea would translate well to these specific cultures. But I think, um, by and large, as long as you've built the rapport that this relationship is not just between you and the physician, that this is between you and the physician's team, or you and the practice. Um, that, that could be a very effective strategy to get to know somebody. I think if they feel they've been listened to, if they feel like their personal concerns are understood and have been taken into account when developing their treatment, you're going to have a lot better compliance and you're going to have people really start to get better and to come back on time and to come for follow-ups and 
they're not the ones that are going to be canceling 24 hours beforehand. You know? Sure. <laughs> so, but there's um, a question of um, not only the quality of the questions, but the quality of how you listen to the answers as well. What kinds of responses should we as providers be looking for that might say, okay, well, we have a cultural gap here, or we have something that we are going to need to address? Sure, that's an incredibly difficult question to answer, but a very good question to ask. Um, different cultures respond in different ways. Um, I think, generally speaking, looking for hesitancy and um, discomfort is very important. Just keeping an eye out for, um, you know, did they seem to hesitate when they gave their answer? Was it because they were really thinking through, or did they seem uncomfortable about something? If they seemed uncomfortable about something, there's no harm in saying, are you sure this works for you? Let's talk about it if it doesn't. You can ask a follow-up question. Now, if you ask that too many times, people start to get annoyed. But, <laughs> but just taking that extra you know, question just to verify you know, and make sure that the person feels they really can say, I don't think this is something I can use. Opening that door for them to not feel intimidated to say, to be honest with you, I'm going to take your notes home. And when I get home, I'm going to put them in the trash because they're useless to me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, I myself am guilty of having done that a time or two, but, <laughs> um, but I mean, that's a reality of what happens with a lot of patients is you think you've given them this great answer. They get home and realize it's just not something they can do. And they might not feel comfortable telling you that. So making sure that that line of communication is open for them to be able to say, I really can't do this. This isn't something that's realistic for me to be able to handle. Yeah. Well, so we've um, we've talked uh, quite a bit about the patients coming to you, but you have a lot of experience in going to the patients into different cultural settings um, in terms of humanitarian aid trip, humanitarian aid trips, and things like that. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that and um, and how that helped shape your ideas about um, about cultural norms and about cultural use of of healthcare? Definitely. Um, I've worked in a couple very diverse regions. I've worked in Thailand. I've worked in the Middle East, um, also in the U.S. with lots of populations. And the primary takeaway is that no matter how much you study an area, you don't know everything about it. Um, and being sensitive to the fact that you don't know goes a long way. I don't think I've ever had an instance where I've worked with a patient and I wasn't sure about something about the culture. And I said, I'm sorry, is this okay in your culture? Where that was not a well-received question. <laughs> um, you know, they, they much prefer you to ask the question before you do something insulting. <laughs> you know, um, And so my work ab abroad has been focused primarily on humanitarian aid and with a specific focus on making sure that you're delivering aid well. Um, we have what uh, has been termed volunteerism happening a lot hmm. in the U.S., um, where people with big hearts and good ideas like to go help people abroad. And those big hearts and good ideas are wonderful, but that does not mean you're qualified to do it or that your organization has really thought all the way through it. Right. So a lot of what I work on is helping organizations um, find those holes in their plan, helping them um, figure out what they're not considering what population they might be disadvantaging in their work and how to work around that. Right. Well, that's the, the uh, cultural humility too, isn't it? That you can't just take your culture and bring it to uh, another nation in a paternalistic manner. You need to come in and say, okay, let's, let's discover 
how I can help you. Let's let's look at ways that that my skills can help you. And that's a very open minded approach that not everybody uh, either has the time or the energy or even the interest in doing. Right. And there is, I think, at times a bit of an ego component that goes along with it. You like to know that you help somebody. Sure. Um, and with that is at times a hesitancy to see how you could help that country make your program something sustainable. So we have a lot of mission organizations, a lot of mission-based organizations that go somewhere once or twice a year and do brilliant work. They provide services that are not possible for people to get in that country. Um, What they don't either see or don't necessarily want to do is to help that country be able to provide those services for themselves. Mm. Um, So one organization that I worked with was a great organization. They did uh, cleft lip and palate repair in the Middle East. And a primary aspect of their program was to train the surgeons in the area on the proper ways to do the cleft lip and palate repair. Uh, This was in Palestine. So there was a lot of stigma against these physicians by the locals. A lot of surgeries had not gone as well as intended by the local surgeons. And so people were really hesitant to go to their own doctors. They would wait for these mission groups to come in. And then there would be huge numbers of people that needed repairs because everybody waited for somebody to come once every six months. Um, You know, that leads to delay to care that leads to malnutrition for when we're talking about infants, there's a lot of consequences that come along with that. Uh, So this, the organization I was working with as part of their program trained physicians in Palestine on how to do these surgeries. Well, they would, when they advertise, they would advertise, you know, um, our American surgeon and the Palestinian surgeons trained by him. So they're at the point now where they're actually able to do in-country mission work. So they're able to provide these surgeries for free, but done exclusively by the Palestinian surgeons that have been trained in these um, more specialized techniques that they don't necessarily have access to there. Um, and the country has responded well. It's led to better follow-up, less infection, Um, better on-time delivery of care. It's been a huge asset for the country to be able to provide these services themselves without having to wait for somebody to come in. So someone right now who's curious about getting involved with this, how much time would an American surgeon have to spend there? I mean, is a week enough time to get some of these doctors up to proficiency? Um, Because I've heard about cataract removal and, you know, Going you know, abroad and teaching someone how to do that, you can have a, a huge you know, multiplier effect by teaching other surgeons how to do that. But right. how much time would someone really need to realistically take out of their practice, away from their families, if they really want to do this, to make a real impact and not just um, you know, a Band-Aid effect, for lack of a better term? Sure. Um, I'm not sure I know an exact number of time for that. I think it probably depends on what the surgery you're doing is, um, what the complications are, what the likelihood of complications are. Um, the organization I went with would go for two weeks at a time and they would go about every six months. Um, with that, they didn't tell the surgeons they've been working with after two weeks. Great. Now you're ready to go. (laughs) You know, they would work with them for, um, longer stretches of time. Sometimes they would work with residents. Sometimes they would work with people, um, in the field. Um, And so they would go several times and um, then they would observe them doing the surgeries themselves and would give feedback. And so it was much more of a long term type of solution than it was. Great. We're going to go for two weeks. We're going to teach this many people how to do it and then we're going to leave forever. Sure. 
Well, even when they did leave, um, well, maybe they never quite left. They just had rotating staff coming in and out. Um, mm -hmm. But was there any online follow-up where maybe they did a webinar to answer questions, things that didn't come up during the training, anything like that you're, that you remember? Um, I, I don't think that there were any webinars or anything like that. The um, Just the mechanism of communication in that particular region doesn't lend itself much to online communication. Sure. Um, and or phone communication for that matter. <laughs> so most of the work that was done was done in person. Um, there was just limited ability to get beyond that. Um, but if questions arose and they were able to email or get, take a call, um, the surgeon that we were going with was more than willing to take that call, more than willing to spend that time. Um, it was definitely a dedicated effort. Well, let me ask you, um, because I'm sure we have listeners who are considering doing some visits for uh, humanitarian aid. Uh, we probably have quite a few listeners who are very experienced, and uh, we'd like to get their response to this. Um, what kinds of advice would you give to anybody, whether a provider or just somebody who is very interested in, in healthcare, to keep them from being, uh, as you term, the uh, voluntourists? What, what kinds of things would you do in advance? What kind of homework? What kind of uh, experience and observation would you do when you get there? Um, what kinds of things to keep you from, from falling into that trap? I think the biggest question to ask is, am I doing something that is needed and is it already being done? So we have a lot of duplication of efforts and... Um, on one hand, you can look at that as great, we're doing even more of it. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you can look at as, well, if I'm going to be doing the same thing, I'm going to be dividing funds. Um, the funding that's out there for this particular effort is no longer going to go to one place. So we're each going to get half. We're each going to be half as effective. Instead, is there an effort I can join that I support that I believe in? Um, can I join that to do the same type of work and strengthen their program? Um, we have a tendency to be very specialized and to really care about specific things um, and specific regions. Just because we're passionate about one specific diagnosis and one specific region doesn't mean that that region actually needs help with that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, and um, a lot of times you might be taking away funding from something that that region really does desperately need, access to clean water. Um, so you want to make sure when you're designing your program that what you're doing is needed and that you're not going to be doing this to the detriment of something else. Right. Well, I'm thinking too, in Palestine, maybe particularly difficult here, but maybe some other countries, it's, it's a little easier if you're very busy and you don't have time to go abroad, maybe inviting someone in on a short term visa to come in and observe you in, in clinic and, and surgery, that might be an option. Are there any organizations doing that? or maybe even meeting in a more neutral country like Jordan, for example? There are lots of organizations like that. Um, there are many organizations that are recruiting for um, physicians of all types to come for just short mission trips. Um, I know there's a lot particularly to do with um, vision and ocular problems. Um, there are just there's myriads of them <laughs> um, sure. that are looking for people on a short-term basis to come and help out. So if it's something you're interested in, there's definite opportunity to to kind of put your toes in the water and see what it's like. 
And then if I were a physician and I'm going abroad, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but as far as malpractice and liability goes, um, what what do I have to deal with? Even I mean, am I even allowed to practice in these countries? How do I get permission? Yeah. How do you deal with those kinds of logistics? So that varies a lot country by country, and that is something that is very often overlooked with these organizations. Um, the you're as an American citizen, you are always tied to the laws of American citizens. <laughs> um, now each country has its own laws. So if you're not a doctor here, you're probably not allowed to practice somewhere else. Um, if you are a doctor here, you might be allowed to practice somewhere else without doing anything, or you may need to get a temporary license. You may need to get um, a permanent license, depending on where you are. Um, each government's uh, health ministry typically can answer those questions for you. Um, but it is something that a lot of people every year get um, brought up on charges for practicing without the appropriate license. And Really? It's a shame because you're trying to go do something good and and there's just that one step you didn't think about, <laughs> you know, so this, that's, that's the importance of taking the time to really think through what you're going to do and, and how you're going to do it. Right. And, and obviously trying to find a, uh, an organization that you can work with. Don't try to reinvent the wheel if the wheel's already there, but also don't take the, the risk and, and try to set something up without some help, especially exactly. since the laws can be very concerning, puzzling, and different from the laws here. So Exactly. I've run into many times the idea of consent, um, what constitutes consent, especially with research. Um, Interesting. The idea of informed consent. I was working on a research project with an IRB, and just the concept of you have to get my permission to ask me questions was really unusual to my population. And made them substantially more skeptical of my questions <laughs> um, because they were saying, well, what are you going to ask me then? You, right. you know, um, I, yeah. I don't understand. Why do you need my permission just to ask me questions? What are, what are you going to do? Um, so making sure that you take that into account when you're asking questions, when you're developing a program, what are the barriers that you might not see to this program? That's that's fascinating. I mean, we could have uh, episode after episode talking about what informed consent means, even in right. a place <laughs> like the United States where it's well defined. Yeah, so that, that's that's a fascinating thing, which, of course, you know, you would never automatically think of. Right. Um, that's, that's a very good point. Well, Mara, I won't ask you which ones aren't doing a good job, but in your experience, which organizations are doing a good job from what you've seen abroad and where would good places go to start looking if you're interested in getting involved? Um, the USAID-type organizations looking for organizations that have government funding are often good ones to look at. Not always, but often. Um, UN-based organizations are usually really good. Um, I tend to work primarily with smaller organizations just by the nature of my work, um, and there's millions of them out there, so I wouldn't be able to begin to list the good ones. <laughs> But in general, those that have substantial government backing and um, and have large funding are ones that are more heavily scrutinized. Um, so they do tend to be more likely to be adhering to all of those specific uh, requirements of what licensing do you need, who's working with the ministry there to make sure that this is all acceptable and, and you're going to have the operating room space when you get to that country. Um, they have the capacity to really be a powerful agent for change. Um, I will say specifically Smile Train has been one of my favorites to work with. Um, they do great work. Um, they're a very honorable organization that takes 
their patient population in high esteem. We'll probably follow up with an email and add a few <laughs> links to these on the show notes so everybody can can take a look if they're interested. Uh, we're at now, we're getting close to definitely past our time, Mara. So um, Keith, it's good for you. Maybe we'll just follow up with one or two questions and close it out because um, yeah. technical um, difficulties. Yeah, that's right. set us back here, so I apologize about yeah. that, Mara. So, no problem. Yeah, so my first question is, uh, what's what's next um, on the uh, the comet that is Mara Howard Williams? Where, <laughs> where where are you taking that interest, and and where do you see uh, the next steps? Sure. Um, well, my focus so far has been um, program planning and evaluation, particularly on global health initiatives um, or on policy initiatives. So with that, I'm hoping to work with international organizations that are either currently running initiatives, want to expand those initiatives, or want to start a new one and helping them think through how can you design your program in a way that makes sure everybody's respected? Are you respecting your volunteers? Are you respecting your end clients, um, the government that you're working with? You might not be, you might not like the government that you're working with, but that doesn't mean you can ignore them. Right. <laughs> So helping build those bridges and make sure that you're not going to get yourself caught up in something um, accidentally because you're just trying to do something good. And hey Mara, just to wrap things up, where can people learn more about you? And maybe just a couple of quick suggestions where they can go to maybe read more about this, learn more about this, and connect with others who are doing the same thing. Um, to be honest, there's not a large group of people that are doing this. <laughs> <laughs> this is a relatively new um new idea, especially in the global health space. Um, for a long time, we've been focused on providing humanitarian aid almost at any cost, and now we're really rethinking what that looks like. Um, there's a lot of, for those that are interested, um, health ethics is kind of where this sits, global health ethics, especially right now when you look at the refugee crises. Um, it's a big time to look at what's being done, what's being helpful that's being done, and what's just being done for the sake of being done. Um, it's a really interesting area to kind of take this mindset and apply it and see how how it works with the refugee population and wherever they may end up. As for where people can find out more about me, I, I don't have a website or anything, <laughs> but you're, ha you're welcome to email me if you have questions. <laughs> We'll put a link to your LinkedIn on there and that uh, way people can learn more about you and, and connect with you there if they'd like. And uh, with that said, Mara, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for your patience with some of our technical issues with Skype today. Hopefully our viewers won't hear much of that at all once we work our <laughs> way through it. But uh, we really enjoyed the conversation and we're so glad to have you on today. Thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation. I'm honored to be here. Well, thanks again, Mara. Again, everybody, that was Mara Howard-Williams. And... You can learn more about her in the show notes and some of the things we discussed. Wherever, whenever you are, take care. Have a great afternoon. We'll see you here next time. Take care. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. We support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com. 